This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Headache is one of the most common medical complaints seen by primary care providers, and although the vast majority of headaches don't represent anything uh, serious as an underlying condition, they can cause a great deal of anxiety for our patients and often disrupt their daily activities. With me today is Dr. Jerry Swanson, a neurologist in the Department of Neurology here at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Swanson is a headache specialist. Welcome, Jerry. It's good to be here. Thank you. Let's start by talking a little bit about the common types of headaches that may come into a primary care office. What are we, what are we likely to see? Well, from a statistical or demographic standpoint, absolutely no doubt migraine is number one by a large margin. So essentially, if you're in a primary care setting, somebody's coming in with recurrent, probably chronic, going on for months or longer, particularly if they're coming and going, uh, and these impact the person's ability to function, along with if they have a little light or noise sensitivity or nausea, migraine is by far and away the most likely cause. And in fact, it, this study's been done. If you look at a group of individuals sitting to, in, a, in a waiting office or waiting room to be seen for a headache, nine out of 10 will turn out to have migraine. Hmm. So really, it might even start with asking, why is this not migraine? Okay. What about tension headaches? Where do they fall? So tension headaches, in fact, are the most common type of headache out in the population. So not in the physician's office or the care provider's office, but just in the general population. So these are the kinds of headaches that many of us get if we're fatigued, spend too much time in front of a computer monitor, uh, drive in a snowstorm here in Minnesota, uh, et cetera, usually um, is going to be self-limited or respond pretty easily to over-the-counter analgesics and maybe a little sleep. Most of the time, these are infrequent, aren't a big problem. More likely to see these in the office if they become quite frequent and then the patient's using a lot of uh, medication over-the-counter okay. or otherwise. Right. So they're very frequent, but the kind we get every day, and we don't often go in to the, see the physician or care provider with a headache unless it's rather severe. Correct. Okay. Well, what are important questions that a primary care provider should ask of patients who come in complaining of headache? So in the outpatient setting, of course, this is most likely to be somebody who's not coming in acutely with a brand new headache, uh, although once in a while that may occur. Um, I mean, it just makes sense if a headache has arisen today or yesterday and it's significant, the possible underlying causes are much greater than something that has recurred for a period of months or even years. So clearly, is this a new kind of headache? Uh, when did it start? Um, if you've had this type of headache before, when did that originally uh, begin? Um, if these headaches are episodic, which most migraine headaches and tension-type headaches, which would, uh, could be seen as well, uh, are, then um, you know, what's the frequency? How long do they last? Um, it's interesting to know and important to know how severe is it. In other words, how does this impact your ability to function? And although the 0 to 10 scale has become sort of sacrosanct almost in American medicine, from what I can tell, in the headache world, we frequently like to attach a descriptor that reflects the severity 
in how it impacts the function of the person. So mild headache, function without difficulty, moderate function with difficulty, and severe can't function. Uh, and uh, again, migraine, as we can talk about a little later, uh, typically is moderate to severe once it becomes uh, maximal. So that's uh, a tip-off, whereas tension type headache, which you might see, particularly if it's frequent, uh, is going to uh, be mild to moderate usually. Um, particularly in migraine, sometimes tension type headache, other headaches, what will trigger the headache. Uh, the quality of the pain is important because, again, uh, sharp stabbing pain, uh, and that's it, very brief, wouldn't be characteristic of migraine, which would more likely be pulsatile. Uh, but pressure is frequently a, a common descriptor of head pain in general. Um, are there any other things that herald the onset of a headache? And again, this becomes relevant in migraine, in so-called migraine with aura, if one gets a visual disturbance or numbness or tingling. Uh, again, accompanying symptoms, and here we're talking about non-neurologic symptoms, or at least non-classical ones, photophobia or light sensitivity, phonophobia, sound sensitivity, uh, nausea, vomiting, again, uh, sort of accompaniments of migraine in one form or another, um, and then what will make the pain worse. Uh, maybe even more important, is there something that triggers the headache acutely, such as cough or sneeze, which would raise the specter of an intracranial process, although those can be benign as well. Um, uh, obviously, if the person has chronic headaches, it's useful to know is there's uh, something that occurs in the family. Uh, migraine tends to be genetic. 70% of people with migraine, if they know their uh, first-degree relative history, will find at least one person who, well, who also has migraine. So that can be helpful in uh, sort of supporting the diagnosis, although that doesn't make the diagnosis, and it also helps begin the discussion about uh, the answer to the question, why do I have headaches, or what is the cause of my migraine headaches. Um, in patients who have chronic headaches, it's certainly possible that at times a new patient to the physician or care provider uh, is faced with somebody who has a long-standing history of headaches, and then you might want to know, well, what evaluation's been done previously, brain scans, et cetera. Clearly important to know what other um, uh, neurologic or medical problems exist, both because it may be a tip-off to something that's more serious than a primary headache disorder like migraine, but also those things influence the medications or other therapies that we might utilize. Because obviously, uh, I think most folks wouldn't uh, give a nonspecific beta blocker to somebody with significant asthma. That's going to be trouble. Or somebody whose blood pressure is 90 over 60. Likewise, a beta block are not going to be a good choice. And we can think of many other contraindications for other medications. Um, and then I think sometimes it is important, too, if a patient does have chronic headaches, is, you know, why are they coming now? Because maybe something has changed, which will require a little further digging. Along with these questions, obviously, uh, it's that sort of physician or medical acumen that comes with some experience about, you know, does this patient look ill as you talk to them? Uh, is it clearly set in other things like new fever, stiff neck, neurologic symptoms? Those, those things all would be a tip-off to perhaps something uh, more serious uh, or in the older patient, uh, age 50 or older, one might inquire about uh, scalp tenderness, jaw claudication, symptoms of polymyalgia rheumatica, which might be a tip-off to giant cell arteritis. But again, I think that the 
depth of the questions uh, and, and where the questioning goes depends upon the initial uh, description by the patient of their problem. Okay. I can still remember back to my days of residency, even though it's been quite a while ago. Uh, I work with some incredible neurologists here. You've had some outstanding teachers in your department for forever, as I can tell. Um, and they always impressed on me the importance of taking a history of patients with, a, uh, with headaches. And one of the questions I noticed they all asked was, what's the time from the onset of the headache until it reaches its peak severity? Is that an important uh, um, question to ask? So that, that can be uh, and is. Uh, and the reason, uh, in, I guess in its, uh, terms of its serious implications, if it's a sudden onset, um, and we haven't really talked about those things which would, might be called red flags or yellow flags that would raise concern, but a split-second onset headache that then persists raises the question of an intracranial catastrophe like subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, most of the time, those people won't show up in the office. Once in a blue moon, they do. Most of those people will present to the emergency department. Um, but that's important. The other reason, I think, to perhaps ask that question is, again, it may have an impact on therapy. So headaches of rapid onset, especially if they're associated with nausea and vomiting, thinking here migraine, um, may be difficult to manage with oral medication acutely. Uh, whereas if there's a gradual onset and buildup and not much nausea early on, oral agents are probably going to be the best approach. Okay. Well, you mentioned red flag symptoms, and uh, you started by talking about the abrupt onset maybe representing something serious. What other red flag symptoms uh, should we be looking for? Sure. So uh, headaches that's triggered by the valsalva maneuver or cough, um, that can be benign, but a significant percentage of individuals have an intracranial uh, structural problem in the posterior fossa, uh, so around the cerebellum uh, uh, brainstem region, if you will. Uh, the most commonly identified underlying structural abnormality is Chiari malformation. Now, I would caution that there are people who have fulfilled criteria based on imaging for Chiari malformation, and they're completely asymptomatic. And since the surgery to treat Chiari malformation is pretty major with decompression at the skull base and high cervical spine, don't run off and have these people uh, see a neurosurgeon for decompression. But uh, they may have other symptoms as well, of course. Um, headaches triggered by exertion. So we're not talking about somebody who has migraine but then can trigger a headache with exercise, but purely exertion. If it's brand new, uh, that would be of concern and is going to require some investigation. Headache that's triggered uh, by sexual activity uh, would be another one. New headache in a woman in pregnancy or the purpurium would be another concern because, again, uh, these women have hypercoagulable states and it's possible they've got a venous sinus thrombosis or some other uh, problem. Uh, a recent head or neck injury with then new onset of headache. I think a past history of head injury and headache likely not going to uh, probably come to any underlying cause that you can directly uh, address, although again, some of those patients, of course, will have a bunch of uh, post-traumatic symptoms that will need to be uh, maybe dealt with that have gone on for a time. We mentioned age, so age 50 and older, uh, always tread cautiously because the incidence of 
significant or serious underlying cause for headache increases as we get older. The majority still will turn out to have a primary headache cause like migraine or tension type headache, but uh, there's an increased risk. And then clearly if somebody comes in with other neurologic problems, they've got a hemiparesis, they have new seizures, impaired alertness, uh, weakness, papilledema suggesting increased intracranial pressure. And then also in somebody with known systemic illness. I mean, if you have somebody with known primary cancer that's metastatic regionally, you might think, gee, could this have gone to uh, brain or skull at that point? And then of course, systemic symptoms like fever, uh, neck stiffness, maybe a, an evolving uh, ongoing weight loss. And then the other things that I mentioned like scalp tenderness, fever can also occur, by the way, in giant cell arteritis. And I think anybody who's immunocompromised, one would be a little more cautious, although most of those people, in my experience, even transplant patients tend to have migraine. Okay. Visit with Dr. Swanson and other Mayo Clinic experts at the Headache Symposium, March 1st through 3rd, 2019. This will be held on the Mayo Clinic campus in Phoenix, Arizona. Registration will open soon. Sign up for the mailing list at ce.mayo.edu. We talked about migraine headaches being the most common type appearing in our office. In most medical conditions, in our patients, we have a medical history which we obtain, we perform a physical exam, maybe do lab tests, maybe do had some type of imaging. But in migraines, we're probably pretty much limited to history, right? So we have to get an accurate history. Right, the diagnosis really is dependent uh, on the history. And as I said, um, you sort of typically do two things at the same time, A, try to build a case perhaps for migraine or why it isn't migraine, and uh, as you're doing that, so you'd like to A, make the diagnosis and at the same time exclude more serious conditions. And uh, certainly, uh, as I said before, a brand new headache or evolving headache would raise a higher index of concern even though it might turn out to be migraine. Migraine is the uh, sort of paradigm for primary headache disorders, so it's basically a malfunction of the system that subserves head pain and obviously other things like uh, that they have to do with nausea and vomiting. And in fact, uh, the diagnostic criteria in a nutshell are moderate to severe headache that untreated lasts four hours or longer uh, with nausea plus minus vomiting or and or light and sound sensitivity. And typically folks with migraine don't go for a run or jump on an elliptical device because any kind of physical exertion, climbing steps even, aggravates the pain. Uh, with all of these, it's, well, it's not due to something else. So somebody who has a brand new headache like that, they're probably going to get a scan or at least a more careful look than somebody who says this is the 1,000th attack I've had or something like that. Um, so, uh, but those are the, the essential uh, ingredients. And again, you can usually establish whether that occurs or not within just a few minutes of chatting with the patient. Mm -hmm seems like most of the patients that I've seen who have had migraines, their symptoms are unilateral. But I've had some whose symptoms really sound like migraine, but they're bilateral. Can you have 
bilateral migraines? Right. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, migraine is actually derived from an ancient Greek word, hemikranos, half head, half skull. So uh, that term has been around for a couple of thousand years or so in, the, uh, the, in, in its Greek beginnings, at least. And uh, it turns out that about 60% of people have a unilateral headache most of the time or nearly all the time. Usually it'll side shift. It usually isn't side locked, but occasionally we see that. But a significant minority, about 40%, in fact, typically have a bilateral headache. So if you use that as an arbiter, I mean, it it's, gets to help specify the diagnosis for migraine, but a bilateral headache doesn't uh, exclude a diagnosis of migraine. So uh, that's uh, an excellent point. Jerry, what, what are ocular migraines? So ocular migraine refers to what we now call migraine visual aura without headache. So it turns out that about one in four patients who have migraine headache will, with some of their attacks, have accompanying focal neurologic symptoms. The most common is a visual disturbance which affects the visual field. Now some patients uh, who maybe aren't paying attention will say, well, it's just my left eye or it's just my right eye. Uh, more astute patients will say, you know, it's really looking off to the right or off to the left that I saw this little dark spot that maybe enlarged gradually, developed a sharp, shimmering uh, edge to it, maybe kaleidoscopic-like uh, uh, pattern. Uh, and then maybe as that got bigger, there was a hole in the vision, what we call a scotoma, where they actually can't see what's out in front of them. Um, this typically will begin gradually, evolve, last 20 to 30 minutes, certainly almost always less than an hour, and then goes away. And that gradual evolution is important in the differential diagnosis of visual disturbance. So a sudden visual loss, uh, even if it's a field loss, I mean, that could be what? Ischemic stroke or TIA. Uh, pretty uncommon to have that as an isolated manifestation in a young person, uh, but um, it could. And sometimes, frankly, people at least tell us when they come in our offices, gee, I never had this visual disturbance and now they're 70 years old. And so getting this history sorted out first might save neuroimaging if they say, gee, I've had these repeated events uh, over some period of time. Uh, you can really be more certain it's uh, migraine versus, as I say, brain ischemia. Uh, aura can also, which now we're getting outside of the ocular part of it, manifest itself as numbness or tingling, which usually will being, begin distally, say in the fingers, and might march up the arm again over 15, 20 minutes into the same side of the face, tongue, and then resolve. Less common if this process affects the dominant hemisphere for speech. For right-handers, that's almost always a left brain, even for... Uh, People who are left-handed, uh, it's mixed dominance, but you'd see it less commonly. Um, and then uh, hemiplegic migraine, where you actually get weakness, is the rarest of all. And all of these seem to be due to a slow spreading activation uh, over the cerebral cortex in that part of the brain that subserves those functions. So in the case of the visual disturbance, that's the occipital uh, region. And that's actually one of the, I think, more clear-cut uh, underlying physiologic processes um, in migraine. I think much of the pain and exactly how that's generated or turned on, uh, although we generally know it involves a variety of structures such as brain stem, trigeminal uh, nerve, probably high cervical nerves, 
secondarily affected blood vessels, meninges with secretion of pain-causing uh, neuropeptides, neurotransmitters. Uh, that's not as well parsed out as actually the, the aura is. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. I think the triptans have been very effective uh, in managing acute headaches in many cases. But what about the occasional use of opioids? Uh, the opioids have been in the news a lot, and uh, are they an appropriate treatment for recurring headaches? Uh, in general, and of course, uh, rules are out there to be, I guess, uh, have exceptions. In medicine, we rarely say never, or uh, rarely do we say always. But I would say in general, they should just be avoided. And I would have said this even without the opioid crisis that our country is currently experiencing. Uh, in fact, if one looks at opioids in the acute setting, I'm talking about the emergency department, when they have been studied, uh, one of the drugs that was very popular a couple of decades ago, meperidine, Demerol, uh, they did some head-to-head -head studies with that and uh, intravenous DHE or intravenous neuroleptics like Compazine. And it turned out that patients actually got better relief with these other drugs. The other issue is that in headache, and particularly migraine, there is this complication called medication overuse headache. This can occur with any analgesic medication, uh, but all analgesics are not created equal. So things like triptans, we limit to nine days a month, nonsteroidals, aspirin, uh, Tylenol, maybe 15 days a month. Things like opioids, as little as six, seven days a month, we might begin generating more headache. So this becomes a major problem. So now uh, we're making the headaches worse with the medicine. And that's a tough discussion to have with patients because they're sort of incredulous. But uh, in fact, this does occur. And uh, one of the analogies, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I've heard it used and I've used it myself is this is a little bit like throwing water on a grease fire. For the first little bit, it seems like you did some good, but you've just set yourself up for more trouble. I think the opioid epidemic has just now highlighted an even more important reason, i.e. addiction uh, and drug overdose, et cetera, why we would avoid these things. And um, I, I think that there's even more reason nowadays to avoid that use of drugs. If they were to be used, and I, that's a big if, uh, I'm not advocating them, then it has to be done in a very controlled way, limited amounts, uh, probably to the point of uh, you know, having a contract that's written out with the patient uh, so that they understand the use uh, and the limitations, and they also understand that um, uh, you may be checking via some of these registries now that states have to see if they're getting prescriptions elsewhere and that uh, you know, losing prescriptions, et cetera, which is less likely now with e-prescriptions directly to pharmacies, or, but I suppose they can lose the bottle, just can't be tolerated. But in general, I think you save yourself a lot of trouble by not going down that line. And I think if you're in primary care and saying, this is what this patient says they need, that might be a good reason to refer them to a neurologist or a physician who has a greater interest in headache and can sort of try to help. Okay. When should we consider prophylaxis for headaches. Um, what, what criteria should we use and we think maybe we need to have something taken every day? Sure. So there are um, a number of guidelines that list some reasons when to consider that. So certainly frequent uh, or long-lasting migraine headaches would be a reason. Now what's frequent? Uh, some criteria say as little as four 
days a month or one day a week. I think that's on the low end because, again, most prophylactic agents are going to be something the patient has to take uh, by mouth every day with the attendant side effects and hassles. And I certainly have physicians who are quite knowledgeable, some of them even neurologists, who have um, uh, migraine and they're going to take a trip down two days a week and uh, leave it at that if they can get by with that. Once we get to that nine day or so a month, just about everybody. Clearly less frequent headaches that are quite devastating cause people to miss work, other activities you might consider at a lower uh, frequency. Uh, there are some patients who you can't use tryptans in or other drugs that are useful. Uh, for instance, people with uh, coronary artery disease, the tryptans are, and uh, 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 ergots, which aren't used much anymore except for dihydroergotamine, are contraindicated. So you might say, gee, uh, ordinarily we could treat these, but you can't, we can't get by with eight bad headache days a month, so we're going to try to reduce those. Sometimes acute therapies fail. So that first you try acute therapies a few different ways, not doing well, the patient's having enough impact on their life that it seems worth it to them. Uh, obviously, when you try the acute therapies, they aren't necessarily contraindicated, but the patient doesn't like the effects, you'll consider that. Um, and then uh, menstrual migraine sort of a special case, but sometimes we use mini prophylaxis with a non-steroidal or perhaps this long-acting uh, tryptan frova, which is, uh, has a very long half-life, and use that daily through the period of risk, particularly if the individual tends to get a prolonged severe headache once a month. The difficulty is if you use a tryptan for, say, five days around the menstrual period, that's five of nine days, and so that tends to break down. So many of those individuals need to be on a daily prophylactic throughout, uh, throughout the month. And then finally, uh, sort of patient choice. So you lay all this out and they say, yeah, but you don't understand it, doctor. I want fewer headaches uh, no matter what, so please prescribe me something. So then you have a discussion and, and, and see what you can work out. What do you like for prophylactic treatments? So the standard drugs is where we, where we go. And again, because these are agents from different classes, which in fact, for the most part, have been um, developed for purposes other than to treat headache, you have to look at uh, the patient carefully. So this requires some customization or individualization. Um, so the, there are the beta blockers. Uh, certainly propranolol is, uh, is, is well proven, but metoprolol, atenolol, uh, natalol can be helpful. The old tricyclic antidepressants, the only one of that group that has good evidence is amitriptyline. But many of us and many experienced clinicians use nortriptyline because of fewer uh, sedative side effects and so forth. Um, topiramate is use, a very useful drug, has good evidence that it's effective, um, useful in that it doesn't tend to lead to gait, weight gain like some of the other agents like the tricyclics, but has its own set of uh, side effects. Depakote can be a good drug, but not a great drug in younger women in the reproductive years because of uh, risk of birth defects, polycystic ovaries, uh, along with weight gain, hair loss, et cetera. So it's, uh, we tend not to use much of that in that group. And in fact, even men sometimes don't like that drug very well, to be honest. Um, then we have some other drugs, which I would view as sort of second line, but sometimes are useful. Uh, gabapentin, uh, verapamil would be um, a couple of those. Um, and then for chronic migraine, we have uh, really 
two uh, agents that have been around for a while that are better than placebo and chronic migraine, I should define briefly. Uh, eight or more migraine days a month, some sort of headache, which may in fact be tension type headache, that you add the, all of the days up and that's 15 or more days a month on average for at least three months. And uh, there we've got Botox, expensive, uh, usually requires pre-authorization uh, with the insurer. But topiramate also has been shown in that group to be effective. And then there is a, are some things on the horizon that have been shown to be effective as well. What's new? What's coming? So the thing that uh, as a group is coming is a family of drugs known as calcitonin gene-related peptide uh, monoclonal antibodies. There are four that have been developed, each by a different drug company or companies. Uh, one of them has now been approved by the FDA late in May 2018. This is Arunumab. Uh, the brand name is Amovig. And um, this is a once a month injectable, a very good data based on the uh, prospective randomized trials that have been done, uh, much more effective than placebo. And by the way, there is a pretty high placebo response in the short run with migraine, maybe 25, 30% in some uh, series. And, but this gets uh, people 50% plus better uh, in about, uh, about 40% of the time, 45% of the time. Uh, does have uh, evidence for both chronic migraine and episodic migraine. Uh, the cost will be a barrier for some, uh, probably about $7,000 a year. Um, less expensive than Botox on a botulinum toxin A, if you will. But um, it's good to have a new type of drug. But the other three agents are fairly far along in development with phase three trials, but just haven't gone through the gamut of FDA approval. They'll probably all be approved, all injectables and uh, probably all gonna be expensive. But it's an exciting time, um, uh, contrary to what some of my colleagues will say, which is this will revolutionize the treatment of migraine. Uh, I think that's a little over the top, but it looks like they'll be very useful for a subset of patients that we aren't helping yet. Uh, the only uh, caveat I guess I would add is that CGRP is ubiquitous in the body. <clears throat> it plays a role in vascular reactivity, particularly under stress. Um, and we don't have long-term widespread use. So uh, I think there's still an open question, although they look very, very safe in uh, one of them up to three years now in a subset of patients who've been treated that long look very good. Um, I think we'll have to wait and see long-term how safe they are, but um, they're at least theoretical concerns. But I'm, I'm excited that we have a new approach to help people who we previously haven't helped very well. We've been talking about headaches with Dr. Jerry Swanson, a headache specialist and Mayo Clinic physician in the Department of Neurology. Jerry, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Today's episode is sponsored by Mayo Clinic CME. Mayo Clinic offers national and international courses. Network with your colleagues at an upcoming Mayo Clinic CME conference. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today. New podcast episodes are added weekly. Subscribe to Mayo Clinic Talks using your favorite podcasting platform to join us. Stay healthy and see you next week.